Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Mike Rosenberg from Columbia Credit Union. Mike says they trust what they see and hear on OPB, and that aligns with Columbia Credit Union's brand. This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. Happy Friday. We start today with trans species design. That's the newish name for a design philosophy that aims to consider the needs of all species, not just humans, in the built environment. That could mean buildings that include habitat for plants, animals, and even microorganisms, with a goal of maintaining biodiversity and lessening the impacts of climate change. The University of Oregon is a hub for this movement. More than half a dozen students and faculty recently put on an exhibition at the Venice Biennale of Architecture. Adrienne Parr is the dean of the university's College of Design. She coined the term trans-species design, and she joins us now to talk about it. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Before we dig into the kind of design that you're calling for, I thought we could start with the status quo in terms of our relationship to other species, because I have a feeling we are so enmeshed in it, so literally surrounded by it, that it's hard for us to to truly see what it means in terms of our relationships to non-humans. So where are we now? Well, in terms of um, the species extinction rate, for example, um, that's occurring at 1,000 to 10,000 times the natural baseline rate. Um, And so if we were to sort of look at that in terms of different numbers, that's about uh, 200 to 2,000 species a year. If we um, look at the low estimate of species that is used globally, so if, for example, our baseline number of species is 2 million different species, that would mean approximately 200 to 2,000 species are going extinct every year. Um, And why that matters is it's also an indicator of a loss of biodiversity, which is like the number of species, animals and plants combined that um, inhabit inhabit like a, a given area. So we are encountering biodiversity loss at an alarming rate, um, and that's directly connected to the species extinction rate. And, and that is obviously tied to many things humans are doing, including deforestation, uh, the use of all kinds of, of chemicals, climate change writ large in so many different ways. But what's the connection between design and architecture and everything you've just been talking about? Oh, that's a terrific uh, question. So if we think about the world's urban population, for example, um, the majority of the world at the moment now is living in urban areas, and that's said to increase. So it's going to hit approximately uh, 70% of the global population will be an urban population by uh, 2050. So that's an increase of about, I don't know, 2.5 billion people, right? Um, over the next 30 years or so. So I think, you know, if we take that into consideration and that as our urban environments continue to grow, um, there's also what what a company 
companies that um, is habitat loss, right? Uh, cities continue to, to, to grow, suburban areas continue to grow. We're having a demise of all these sorts of habitats that our wildlife depends upon for its flourishing. So I mention that because the design and development of human settlements is directly connected to this problem surrounding biodiversity loss and species extinction. So if we take that into account, we can do something about this. And it means we have to sort of rethink the ways in which we design and develop our built environments. What are the hallmarks of trans species design as you see them? So the idea for trans species design, and I might um, back up just briefly to sort of speak to you about, you know, how it came about and how I sort of thought of it, that might be helpful for the listener. I, I wrote a book about a year ago, it was published, called Earthlings, and in that I put forward this idea of trans environmentalism, and it was structured by three sort of theoretical pillars. One of them was transgenerational thinking and practices, one was trans national thinking and practices. And the third pillar was what I call transspeciesist thinking and practices. And these three sort of trans practices and thinking is what sort of were the fundamental sort of ingredients to what I'm calling trans environmentalism. And I thought when I arrived as a dean at the University of Oregon, where there's this incredibly rich legacy of work around environmental justice and climate change and um, issues to do with ecological vitality and so on and so forth. And the, in particular, the College of Design has been doing work in this area for decades, since really the 60s, and has been a leader uh, in that space. I thought it would be really wonderful um, to test one arm of that theory in collaboration with faculty and students. And so I extracted the transspeciesist arm, so to speak, um, and threw it out to the college community as, as a new dean. Um, and I'd already been invited in my capacity as a UNESCO Chair of Water and Human Settlements to curate a small exhibit as part of the Venice Architecture Biennale. So I needed a kind of curatorial concept. Um, and I wanted to do something that could be both real and also hypothetical, right? Experimental, so to speak. Uh, and so the idea was thrust out into the, the College of Design community. And, and to, to my delight, um, there were a whole variety of collaborations across the college that emerged as a result of this call. And um, there were collaborations across different disciplines. There were faculty that had studios with students doing um sort of visionary work in this space, everybody sort of testing these ideas, trying to sort of figure out how might that work in concrete terms. And then from there, I selected a group of projects uh, to go on to be exhibited uh, at the Biennale. Well, can you describe some, some of the projects that, as you say, how they would work in concrete terms? What are some examples of what this can or could look like? So... You know, the, the idea of a transspecies design practice, I think, is very much indebted to some of the work that's already taken place around the building of, um, say, wildlife overpasses. A really good example would be uh, the one in Banff in Canada. 
And those those wildlife corridors are, are a direct response to habitat fragmentation because of human activities and the constructions of roads and highways, right? So what happens if we take that idea of a, of a sort of a, a trans-speciesist infrastructure and start to think of the urban environment as a whole as having the potential to function like a, 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 an infrastructure for biodiversity? Uh, other examples might be the Highline in New York, for example, right, which um, attracts all kinds of pollinators and migratory birds now. And that, it's- that's a, a, a former elevated train uh, platform that's on, on the west side of the city that in over the last decade plus was turned into a, a kind of meandering park for that's humans, right. but also has a, a lot of plantings. Yes, and what I love about that example is that that one's really a, a system premised upon mutual flourishing of both humans and other than human species. And this is what transspecies design is also uh, trying to highlight, that it, it's not just about, you know, providing a little plot of land here and there that, you know, we hope that other other than human species visit and might use, but that actually we can create environments of mutual flourishing for both humans and other than humans alike. And the High Line in New York, I think, functions beautifully in that regard. I mean, it's a three and a half acre stretch of land that's built by biological biodiversity back into New York City with, you know, 200 species of perennials or something was one of the statistics that I read. Um, and it's one that, you know, people frequent and use both for enjoyment, but also to sort of walk to work each day. Um, and it's a place where where all kinds of species come together in a system of mutual flourishing. That, that's um, an outdoor example, uh, as is mm-hmm. the kind of wildlife corridor in, in Banff. I'm curious about, um, I, we're, we're talking via Zoom right now. We can't see each other. I, I don't know where you are. But I imagine you're inside. I don't hear a kind of a, any outdoor sounds. I mean, what about the room you're in right now? I mean, how, how do you envision indoor spaces could change if we're talking about a profoundly different approach to sharing space? Oh, I love that question. So I'm actually right now at Overlook in Pennsylvania with the Fuller family who so generously uh, supported the college in this venture to bring the work of transspecies design to the Biennale. Um, and so I'm at their home in the middle of a, a of a an incredible forest <laughs> in the heart of Pennsylvania. So I'm surrounded at the moment with, with pollinators left, right and centre. But when it comes to, to building structures, and I think that's really the heart of your question, um, how might, for example, uh, the facade of a building function as an other than human species habitat, or even more than that, a a habitat for both humans and other than humans alike. And I think a terrific example of that would be Stefano Boeri's vertical forest in Milan. Um, That's two really large residential towers. Um, And really, uh, Stefano Boeri, when he conceived of the creation of, of those two towers, he was trying to come up with a prototype building as a biodiversity infrastructure. Uh, one that was premised upon having uh, a positive relationship that sort of 
facilitated the, the creation of a sort of positive relationship between humans and other than um, human species. And it houses 21,000, you know, trees, shrubs and perennials and 300 non-plant residents, as I'd like to say. Mm. So in that example, I think, you know, that's built. It's functioning really well. It filters wastewater for, for the plants that, you know, are all around the building. Um, it also has uses renewable energy with solar panels and so on and so forth. Um, and it's, it's a, a building that's conceived of as uh, a process of biodiversity. And so what I mean by that is that the structure itself is managed both naturally and human managed so i think this is the kind of thing that i'm intrigued by how might we create more structures like that that fill our our build environments with all kinds of plant species and also act as both attractors for humans and for pollinators birds and other kinds of wildlife hmm. um how, how do you how do you think about trans species design when it comes to species that could make us sick or even kill us, I'm thinking about black mold or certain bacteria or novel coronaviruses. Mm -hmm. Ah, so we had a project uh, included in the exhibit, which was a project coming out of the biology and built environments with Mark Fretz, um, and that's that research institute is housed within the college. And I don't know if you ever had the opportunity to interview Mark and the former director, Kevin Vanden by Mellenberg during COVID, but they were doing a lot of really important work um, and were consulting during COVID around the spread of viruses indoors and what kinds of materials facilitate and in or and or inhibit the spread of the virus and in that instance you know a lot of their scientific work showed that you know natural ventilation daylighting for example really really helps curb the spread of those viruses so i think you know there's certainly a lot of incredible work that can be done at a multiplicity of scales whether we're talking at the micro scale or if we're moving up into much larger habitat um, scales looking at a variety of you know plantings of native species and so on and so forth I think the same principle can apply I think if we start with the premise of mutual flourishing I think um, that helps us be able to sort of talk about you know black mold that's not going to be something that that facilitates mutual flourishing for humans as well for example. And I would imagine for, for many other animals, it wouldn't exactly be a, fr a friendly entity for them either. Mm. Um, but I do think the issue here is how do we think about this in a multi-scalar way? We only have a few minutes left, but if on some level we're talking about getting better at sharing spaces, it's at mm. least as much a question of psychology or sociology, about human minds and emotions as it is about engineering. How do we become less entitled as a species? Well, that is the million-dollar question, but I do think we could certainly look to examples that 
are working, and I will go back to, say, the High Line in New York City, for example, there, um, and the urban reforestation project with the vertical forest in Milan, um, those, those examples show that this can be both a positive aesthetic and, um, and culturally enriching experience, and the more positive experiences we have in these systems of mutual enrichment, I think the more... Uh, willing we are both as a society and politically, because it's also going to, I think, policy has to be also driving this as well, not just the design community and the science community. Um, but if we look at it in that way, I, I think this is a, 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 an area that um, is ripe for further study and further advancement, because I think that people can begin to recognise that it's a pleasurable space to also be inhabiting. In the minute we have left, I'm, that, 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 talking about pleasure, and you also have talked about joy, I think. What's, what's the joy here? What, what are the emotional benefits for humans? Oh, so I'll give you one example. In, from in one my, minute, if you, if you can. One minute. Oh, okay. So in the slums of Nairobi, I did a lot of research there and I went into uh, a, 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 an urban farm in the heart of Nairobi and it was filled with kale plants and tomatoes and small shrubs. And what changed was the air quality changed, the light conditions changed, the sounds changed because birds were in the area in parts of the slum, most parts of the slums, they don't exist. So it was a multi-sensory, multi-dimensional experience that engaged a variety of our senses. And that sort of positive, affective space is one that I think that is at the core of mutual flourishing. Adrian Parr, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Adrian Parr is the Dean of the University of Oregon's College of Design. It coined the term trans-species design, meaning designing spaces with non-humans in mind as well. Think Out Loud and OPB's critical reporting from all across the Northwest happen only with the support of our members. Do your part now and join in as a sustainer at opb.org pod.